Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most people don't have a sleep problem. They have a stress problem or an anxiety problem. For example, it's perfectly natural to wake up in the middle of the night. You go to sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep again. And you can do that several times during the night. Most of the time, we're unaware of it. But if we're anxious or if we're stressed, when we wake up, we think, oh, my God, all the things I failed to achieve yesterday and what I've got to do today. And then not knowing that if you stay calm, you stay relaxed, you will fall back to sleep. It's very much the management of stress and anxiety. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I have the absolute magnificent Dr. Russell Foster, who is one of the world's leading sleep and body clock doctors in the world. Dr. Russell is a professor of circadian neuroscience at Oxford, and he has just written a true gift of a book that combines his decades of research and teaching to create a practical, easy to read, deeply informative book called Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can revolutionize your sleep and health. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? I suppose it would be something along the lines of never be frightened to laugh at yourself. I think we are all at some level ridiculous <laughs> at some points of our life. And I think as long as we find ourselves funny, then I think the rest of the world will too. <laughs> I mean, clearly you need to take yourself seriously when you're doing your work and your science. But I mean, generally, I think it's good to have the ability to laugh at yourself. I couldn't agree more. And what a joyous note to begin with. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Kindness and generosity of spirit. We've all gone through such a ghastly time over the last few years. Many of us have lost close family members and various other things. And I think it's kindness and generosity of spirit. And my concern is that we've marginalized that. Mm. And I think it's time to open up again and just be kind. Think of others. I know it sounds a bit trite, but but I really feel that there's our society needs to make room for that at the moment. The news cycle at the moment that's projecting this doom and gloom onto next year. Yeah. 
it has a real impact on shriveling people up and thinking, oh, well, I don't even have the time to be kind or the capacity to be kind because it puts us so deeply into survival mode. I think that's exactly right. And I think that survival mode is not living. Yeah. We are creatures of community and we're very social creatures beyond our families and our friends and our, our work colleagues. And I think that sense of community needs to return. And I'm not sure quite where it's gone, but your point about survival mode, survival mode must include consideration of others. Absolutely. What is your understanding of the soul? Do you know, Poppy, that's so interesting because I've just been asked to review a book about memory. And in reading the book, it occurred to me that essentially what defines us as individuals is our memory, not how we feel about ourselves. And indeed, our memory very much influences how other people see us. And so in a, in a sense, our memory is our essence. I think that the soul, in terms of neuroscience, the closest we can get is perhaps our memory. Now, the big question is, of course, what happens to that when we're no longer around? Uh, and of course, our memory does exist because of the interactions we've had with other people and the way we've influenced their lives. I mean, as a teacher, it's an absolute joy to think at some level, a tiny level, I've influenced other people through education. And so in a sense, my soul, if you like, my memory <laughs> lives on through other people. So now I'd love to dive into your brilliant book and your work. And sorry for the very basic question to begin with, but We've had so much conversation about sleep in the public domain, but very much less about body clock. Yes. What do you wish more people understood about the body clock? If we sort of step back and think about our biology generally, what our biology needs is the right stuff at the right concentration in the right place at the right time of day. And without that extraordinary coordination in time, by our circadian system, our bodies and our physiology and behavior would be in a complete sort of meltdown. And so what the circadian system does is timestamp everything. In a sense, it stops us doing our biology, doing everything at the same time, because we have to have a coordinated, a sequential approach to the things that we do. And that's this wonderful internal clock is timing everything. And I would really like people to appreciate that we are different creatures at different times. And that means that we need to embrace that variation, whether it be the timing and the taking of particular drugs, whether it's about making a decision. I mean, it's quite extraordinary in adults, our ability to process information and make decisions peaks in the sort of late morning, early afternoon, around about 11, 12 o'clock. So, you know, maybe we should wait for those important decisions to think about those decisions at that particular time of day. So really what the book's about is laying out the science, the new science really, of circadian rhythms and the body clock and how we can embrace that science and maximize our health and well-being. And sleep, of course, is one aspect of our 24-hour biology. It's not entirely driven by the circadian clock, but without a clock, our 24-hour pattern of sleep and wake will be completely smashed and we would have you know, fragmented sleep with no discernible rhythm at all. So many things to ask you about that. Firstly, the decision-making optimal times of the day. Why is that? 
It's a great question. And I suppose the short answer to many of these sorts of questions is we sit on a, an earth that rotates once every 24 hours. And it's a completely different world between morning and evening or nighttime and midday. And our biology cranks up and down according to that revolution of the earth on its axis. So one would argue you're waking up, you've reached your peak of efficiency, you've switched from the nighttime physiology to the daytime physiology, you're moving through this new world of the daytime, you've got to interact with others, you've got to find food, you've got to do all these essential things. And that probably represents, you know, 11, 12 o'clock, a good time. You've fully woken up your peak performance, and then you can make some important decisions that you can then execute throughout the rest of the day before nighttime comes and you're sleepy again. How do you then know if you have a suboptimal body clock or if your body clock is malfunctioning in some way? Well, what we've tended to do is merge sleep and circadian rhythms. Mm. And we, we've come up with a new term called SCARD, sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. And um, we've done this because it's very difficult to disentangle whether you have loss of sleep or a malformed uh, body clock because these two things are inextricably linked. So how do you know if you're functioning effectively during the day, uh, if you're getting enough sleep, if your body clock is appropriately aligned? Well, it's fairly straightforward. Are you functioning? optimally during the day? Do you feel you can function at an optimal level or do you feel you're under par? So that's the first thing, an assessment of one's own uh, ability. Do you depend upon an alarm clock or somebody else to wake you up in the morning? That suggests you're not properly aligned. Do you oversleep extensively on free days such as the weekend and particularly on holidays? Does it take you a long time to sort of wake up in the morning? Are you sort of groggy? This is called sleep inertia. Do you feel sleepy, irritable, fatigued when you are awake? Do you crave a nap during the day? Do you find that you're doing overly impulsive and unreflective things? Do you crave caffeinated and sugar-rich drinks? And also, are you listening to your friends, family, and colleagues? Are you showing altered behaviors? Have you got increased irritability, loss of empathy? Are you doing, you know, again, disinhibited, stupid things? These are all signs that your clock and your sleep-wake cycle is not optimally aligned to the demands of the day. An intervention that you talk about comprehensively in the book is light. And I think this is really interesting because, again, I think so much of the conversation around sleep has, and this is something you talk about a lot, has created a lot of anxiety because I'm sure that many of my listeners and including myself have just listened to that list and gone, oh God, yeah, me, God, oh God, yeah, yeah, me, me, me. And then you think, oh shit, how do we improve this? And then immediately we go to, okay, well, I need to go to bed early or something, but you then lie in bed, you can't go to sleep earlier and you get even more anxious and you're thinking to yourself, tomorrow's going to be even bigger of a disaster. How do we curb the anxiety in the Dr. Russell way? <laughs> That's such an important question. And you've raised so many important points. The first one being, I mean, I think we've all been bombarded with a whole string of you must do this and you mustn't do that. Yeah. And that was part of the reason I wanted to write Lifetime. I was sort of fed up with people saying, um, oh, you must get eight hours of sleep. Otherwise, you're going to fall apart. And in fact, the, the range for adults of natural sleep can be six hours to 10 or even 11 hours. And the key thing is that we work out what is required for us and then optimize our behavior accordingly. I, I just sort of anecdotally, before lockdown, 
somebody came up to me and said, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, I can guarantee you're going to die, but it may have nothing to do with the fact you're, you're not getting eight hours of sleep. And the key thing, I, I think the really serious point is that we work out for ourselves what we need. If you're a morning type and you get up early and go to bed early, then then you shouldn't be pressurized by friends and family that you should stay up late. Mm -hmm. And of course, so many of us for work reasons need to get up early. And that's really tough for people like myself. I'm a late type. And so I used to go to bed late and get up late. I still work jolly hard during the day, but it was at a slightly different time. And I think employers are becoming a bit more sensitive to those sorts of individual needs. Now, I know it's complicated, but if you want the optimum out of your workforce, surely you accommodate when they're going to be able to perform best. And so I think it raises some other issues, which is well, what should an employer expect of an employee? I mean, if we think about the night shift work, for example, a study a few years ago showed that 57% of junior doctors had either had a crash or a near miss on the drive home after the night shift. Well, first of all, the employer should alert them to this potential risk. And then second, either provide or advise that they get a device which you can clip onto the dashboard and detect if the person's head is nodding or the car is moving laterally and sets off an alarm to show that they're falling asleep. Knowing there are huge health risks um, of night shift work and indeed not just night shift work, but people who are chronically tired and maladapted because of the demands of working at night. High rates of cancer in long-term night shift work, metabolic abnormalities, cardiovascular disease. Well, why aren't we having higher frequency health checks for those individuals who are vulnerable? And the cost of doing a health check versus the cost of dealing somebody with a chronic illness is negligible. It's stuff that we could do now. Another rant I have is, is again, the food available to many people on the night shift. It's high fat, it's high sugar. And what do we find in night shift workers? Obesity, diabetes 2, metabolic syndrome. Why aren't providing, you know, high protein, easy to digest snacks? So I think with the knowledge that we have in the, at the moment, both the employee and the employer can work together to optimize the performance of, of the workforce. And we've got to be less 19th century about the whole yeah. thing and draconian and this sort of insistence on, on rigid um, work times. And I think if, you know, COVID has taught us anything, it's that increased flexibility about working and getting the optimum performance from individuals. I mean, I think something that is really under-discussed and is a complete crisis we are in in regards to humanity as a whole is the fertility crisis. The fact that men and women's fertility is dropping quite substantially. And you have a, a section in your book talking about fertility and sleep, but I wanted to kind of ask you about this in further detail is our disruptive sleep patterns affecting our fertility and why and how? And what are your thoughts on this? Well, to answer a question you asked me earlier, which is about stress, yeah. and I forgot to answer it properly. And I think you flagged up already that most people don't have a sleep problem. They have a stress problem or an anxiety problem. For example, it's perfectly natural to wake up in the middle of the night. And in fact, the, the default human sleep pattern is almost certainly what's called biphasic or polyphasic, which is you go to sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep again, uh, you wake up and you go back to sleep again. And you can do that several times during the night. Most of the time, we're unaware of it. But if we're anxious, or if we're stressed, when we wake up, 
we think, oh my God, all the things I failed to achieve yesterday and what I've got to do today. And then not knowing that if you stay calm, you stay relaxed, you will fall back to sleep. Sometimes lying in bed is not the best place. You leave the bedroom, go to somewhere where the lights are low, but relaxing. You can read a book or listen to some relaxing music. When you feel tired, you can go back again. It's very much the management of stress and anxiety and winding down at the end of the day uh, so that you leave all of those ghastly sort of stressful anxiety making issues at work or somewhere else other than the home. Now, going back to your question about fertility, we do seem to have a crisis. I was reading an article the other day that sperm number has dropped hugely, not just in Europe, but across the world. We don't know the answer to that, but it's likely to be related at some level, I suspect, to stress. And what's the greatest inducer of stress? Well, it's not getting the perceived sleep that you need. So in fact, sleep and sleep disruption may well be a contributing factor to reduce levels of fertility in both men and women. Now, we do know that stress can interact, for example, with the hormones associated with the female menstrual cycle. So, for example, if you look at uh, night shift workers and an air crew, the menstrual cycle can become very regular or it may even stop. Fertility is a, is a problem for those individuals. And indeed, there's uh, some suggestion that natural abortion may also be higher in night shift women compared to day shift women. So there could well be stress factors coming into play here. And of course, it goes back to the fact that the circadian system underpins the regulation of so many of the hormones mm. that drive either the female menstrual cycle, not only the release of hormones from the pituitary gland, for example, and their timed release, but also the way that the ovary responds to those uh, hormones. There are actually clocks in the receptors in the ovary. And if they're disrupted, they can't respond to those hormones appropriately. So there's infinite capacity for disruption. I will tell you one story. I was on a, on a radio program and I was talking about all the changes in hormones. And there's a peak in, in testosterone during the first thing in the morning. And that has been associated with greater sperm motility. Uh, and therefore, you know, the chance of swimming to that egg and fertilizing it. Anyway, I mentioned this on the radio. And six weeks later, I got a, an email from somebody saying, hello, Professor Foster, my partner and I have been trying for two years. And I heard you on the radio. And the first time we did it in the morning, it worked. So... <laughs> So thank you. And now I, I, it's an N of one and I don't want to take it too seriously, but, but it did make me, did make me laugh a lot. That's hilarious. I wonder how many little babies are out there all thanks to your morning, your morning sex advice. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, the serious issue, Poppy, is that, yeah, the, the, the circadian system is inextricably linked with those reproductive hormones and reproductive cycles and disruption of those circadian rhythms mm. and increased levels of stress due to loss of sleep will impact absolutely on, on fertility. I would love to talk about some of the implications a bad night's sleep can have on our emotional and mental health. So poor sleep, and it can be relatively short sleep disruption few days, for example, and you'll start to see fluctuations in mood and what's called a negative salience. This, I think, is so cool. There's some studies that were done in the lab a few years ago, and not by us, but by researchers in the States, and they showed that the tired brain remembers 
negative experiences, but forgets positive ones. So people who haven't had enough sleep, they've got a tired brain, their whole worldview is based upon the negative stuff that has happened to them rather than the positive stuff. So, you know, increased irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy and frustration. It goes back to, you know, the beginning of the program, the failure to pick up the social signals and the needs of others is a, is a hallmark of loss of sleep and this sort of frustration with others. There's risk-taking, impulsivity. Uh, you do stupid and unreflective things, things you wouldn't do, you wouldn't dream of doing. You know, oh yeah, I'm going to get through that red traffic light. Why would you do that for the sake of a few seconds, but you're much more likely to do it if you're not processing your world effectively because you haven't had the sleep that you've needed. Why is this happening? Like what is happening during sleep and then what is not happening when you don't get enough sleep to be having these impacts like loss of empathy, risk taking? That's crazy what you just said, just to really make a point of that. You remember the negative experiences more than the positive ones. I mean, this is quite shocking. It, it is. And what you emphasize, of course, is that what's happening whilst we sleep is a complete reset of brain function. You know, everybody thinks sleep is sort of basically brain inactivity. It isn't. I mean, if you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, it's now been shown that a night of sleep can hugely enhance your capacity to do that. So, for example, a, a study exposed people to a particular task and it was introduced to one group in the morning and then they had to perform the task in the afternoon and about 20% of the group could solve the problem. Second group introduced to the task in the morning, performed it the following afternoon, but they were deprived of sleep and about 20% solved the problem. So they'd nicely controlled for fatigue. But the really cool stuff bit was introduced the task in the morning, performed it the following morning with a complete night of sleep, 60 to 70% actually solved the problem. Wow. I think that's a real illustration of what the brain is doing whilst we're asleep. It's you know got this massive information that it's dealing with, overwhelming amounts of information that's dealing with during the day. And it's trying to make sense of that whilst we're asleep. And then when we're awake, process the new stuff that's coming in as accurately as possible. So that's, you know, it's this incredible reset that's going on. Now, if we don't get that sleep, then we try and seek it out in other ways. So we drive the, the waking day with endless caffeine, cups of coffee, and, and sugar-rich drinks. And the problem is, is if the waking day is driven by that, caffeine can last in the body for quite some time. So if you're drinking caffeine late in the day, it's for some people, you know, who are very sensitive to caffeine are going to find it really difficult to get to sleep at night. So what do they do? They take sedatives, sleeping tablets of some sort or alcohol. Huge numbers of people actually uh, wind down by taking alcohol, try and relax themselves and then sedate themselves. And of course, what alcohol does, it's a sedative. It does not provide a biological replacement for sleep. In a sense, so many of the faculties that make humans the wonderful creatures that we are, are essentially promoted, enhanced and driven by a good night of sleep. So essentially, our synapses slower. Yeah. Is that really what is happening? Basically, the whole brain just slows down. It does it not have enough nutrients or like, how would you help people understand that? We don't know. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. Okay, we're going to get a bit philosophical now. Yeah, why do why do we sleep? And I wrote a paper a few years ago saying there is no mystery to sleep. 
um, which irritates some of my colleagues a lot and others quite like it, because the argument was essentially almost all life on Earth has evolved to be active at a particular time of day, mm. during the day or the night, and has evolved specializations that allow us to function optimally during the day or the night or at the transition between the two. If you think of a difference between, oh, I don't know, an owl and a robin, you know, completely different specializations for night activity versus day activity. So we need to function at a particular time of day. Now, once you've made, as it were, that evolutionary decision, then you say, well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff to do. When am I going to allocate it in time? Because compartmentalization in time makes things very, very efficient. So essentially, if you've burnt up a whole bunch of calories during the day, then you reset your metabolism during inactivity at mm. night. Uh, if you've taken in loads and loads of information during the day, then you begin to process it at night thinking, okay, shall I remember that? Does it fit with my pre-existing framework of memories and all the rest of it? So my definition of sleep would be a period of physical inactivity, preventing you from moving around within an environment to which you're, you're inappropriately adapted, you're not adapted, and during which time you perform essential aspects of our biology. There is no mystery to sleep. Essentially, it's allocating a whole bunch of vital stuff to a particular period in time, which explains, of course, why sleep changes as we age, why it may be different between people, and, of course, why sleep is very different uh, between different animal groups. Some sleeping, you know, for 16, 17 hours, others maybe sleeping for five hours. So I think it's an incredibly dynamic, interesting biology. But it isn't just one thing. But going back to your, your question about synapses, there is a very strong theory that, uh, that it's memory pruning and consolidation through the changing of synapses within the brain that ultimately is one of the key features of memory consolidation while we sleep. I think I remember reading a study that if you had a traumatic incident happen in the day, they actually encourage you not to sleep for as long as possible because your brain then wouldn't have the chance to consolidate that memory and create a trauma perhaps and then influence behavior in the future. I think it's, a, again, a really interesting question. So post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And there has been a policy that if you are exposed to some appalling event, then you're encouraged to sleep. There are studies from the lab and now studies from the field which suggest that that may not be the best idea. Mm. And as you rightly point out, because we did some studies in the lab led by Kate Pochette, and she exposed individuals to a traumatic uh, video of images of death and self-harm and things like that, and then looked at the number of flashbacks or intrusions after that exposure to the video in people who had not slept at all immediately following the exposure to the video or who'd slept normally. And the people who had not slept had fewer flashbacks and intrusional memories. It's too early to have new policy, but there's a very serious thought now that maybe after trauma, you encourage people not to sleep and therefore the failure to consolidate memories. Do you know, and I was talking, I was at dinner with somebody the other night who was from Ireland and they were talking about the wake. And what's so fascinating about the Irish wakes that this person was talking about is that the family member is ill, they're going to die, and people stay up, 
with the individual. They drink a huge amount of alcohol, both prior to death and after death. And of course, lack of sleep and large amounts of alcohol are one very effective way in which you would um, uh, prevent memory formation. And you think about soldiers after a battle. What do they do? They stay up and they drink masses of alcohol. Perhaps mm. these have been societal ways unwittingly, which have prevented the consolidation of, of appalling memories. Now, I don't know. I think this is you know, to discuss, um, mm. but, but there's some very interesting science emerging, which suggests that it may be a good idea to prevent sleep immediately after trauma. Well, I thought it was really interesting reading about your story of how you actually came to study sleep because you were talking to psychiatrists. Yes. And the fact that schizophrenia patients were found to not have any REM sleep. So I was in a, in a lift with a psychiatrist who I vaguely knew, and they turned to me and said, oh, you work on sleep, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, kind of, like more <laughs> circadian rhythms, but anyway, yeah. And he said, oh, well, my pa he, he worked with, with patients with schizophrenia. And he said, oh, well, it's obvious, you know, my patients have terrible sleep, and that's because they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic, and don't have friends. And I thought that was just silly. So I got together with some other psychiatrists, and we studied 20 individuals with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. 20 unemployed individuals and 20 employed individuals using the same techniques. And when we looked at the sleep-wake patterns of the individuals with schizophrenia, I was absolutely gobsmacked. Their rhythms were smashed. That's the only way to describe them. No regular sleep-wake patterns. And if they were vaguely regular, they were incredibly delayed. So they were up all night and asleep during the day compared to the un unemployed who were basically normal and were not statistically different from the employed. So it was not a lack of work that was driving this appalling sleep-wake. It also seemed to be completely independent of the medication that these individuals were on. So there's also been a school of thought saying, oh, well, this is just the side effect of the, um, the antipsychotics that people are on. But, you know, forgetting the fact that poor sleep was described back in the 1880s, almost 80 years before antipsychotics were being used routinely. And so what we decided to do was measure sleep-wake patterns in individuals with, with schizophrenia. And what we found was this massive, you know, smashed rhythmicity. And that made us think about, well, what's the cause? And many people have said, oh, well, is it chicken and egg? Mm. And actually, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Because the circadian and sleep-wake systems draw from all of those brain neurotransmitter systems. The flip from sleep to consciousness involves a complete realignment of all the brain neurotransmitters. So if you have a change in a neurotransmitter that predisposes you to mental health, whether it be changes in serotonin or dopamine or whatever, it's going to have an impact upon sleep at some level. So we propose that there was a common mechanistic overlap. And of course, we and others have found very strong evidence for that. So genes that have been linked to mental illness have now been shown to play a role in sleep-wake regulation and vice versa. So at the core, there is this genetic predisposition which overlaps with the two. But of course, it's more complicated than that because sleep-wake disruption causes impacts upon one's whole cognitive performance, mm. one's perception of the world. And so that can exacerbate the mental health state and of course, the poor mental health state can make sleep much worse. So you then go from this overlap in the center, which can then massively shift because of these positive feedback loops and get worse and worse and worse. Mm. 
So what we said is, okay, if we can even partially consolidate sleep-wake, do we show improvements in the level of mental health status? And so Dan Freeman, a psychiatrist, a colleague here in Oxford, led a trial which partially consolidated sleep in individuals with insomnia, showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And what we're able to show, and I think this is so exciting, was that partial consolidation of insomnia sleep improved levels of insomnia and paranoia, showing that the sleep-wake systems can provide a new therapeutic target for mental health. And that now is having a big, I think, influence on psychiatry. Before, sleep-wake patterns were being largely dismissed as, oh, you know, this artifact. Now, they're seriously thinking of, of targeting them to improve the health status of individuals with mental illness. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, there's a lot of positive interventions that we can make to improve our sleep wake cycle. But I want to focus on just maybe a few of the really main easy changes people can make. Sure. The first one that comes to mind is access to light. I would love for you to include any others you think that are slightly less usual than, you know, relax before bed, turn screens off. Light is critically important. We have this internal circadian rhythm. But the clock isn't exactly 24 hours. For most of us, 90% of us, it ticks a little bit longer. So we would get up later and we go to bed later if, for example, we were in a deep, dark cave, no light, no, no temperature cycles. And so what light does is set the clock to the local time. Napping, I think it's also important to touch on. I, th I guess if you're napping, it means that you're probably not getting the full sleep that you need at night, uh, particularly if you're in the northern part of the northern hemisphere. But a 20-minute nap around about lunchtime or early afternoon has been fine. Longer than 20 minutes, it's a bit of a problem. And one of the big problems is you can fall into a pattern of longer naps during the day and shorter nighttime sleep. Uh, food, well, how can this feed in? Uh, sorry, that's an awful pun. <laughs> <laughs> but, but basically, we have shifted. I think this is so fascinating. If you think about the social behavior of us as a species, in 1100, the main meal of the day was breakfast. By the Tudor period, it had shifted to 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, you know, lunchtime. And it's only in the past sort of less than 100 years where work and where we live has been so radically separated that we now don't have a big breakfast. Most of us, you know, don't have breakfast at all. We rush off to work. We have a sandwich at our desk. And then finally we get home and we put something in the microwave and eat late in the day. 
But our biology is still geared to having the main meal of the day first thing in the morning. And so what happens is that that late food at night is turned into fat, and that can lead to a whole bunch of problems. I mean, we've talked about obesity, we've talked about diabetes 2, metabolic syndrome, and also if you gain weight, then you can get conditions like obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the musculature of the throat then collapses, and uh, you see it in a sleeping partner as either massive snoring or the cessation of breathing. So they're snoring, they're breathing, then there's nothing for a bit, for a few seconds, but it can be up to a minute or more. And then there's this huge splattering and taking in air. And that is associated with a huge surge in blood pressure. And those conditions have been associated with increased chance of stroke and, of course, damage to the eye. So disruption to your sleep as a result of being overweight is a consequence of perhaps eating too much too late in the day. So try and concentrate your calorie intake early on. There's lots of other things, you know, don't clock watch, for example. So many of us have an illuminated clock by the bed. So we'll wake up. And as we said, you know, waking up is perfectly natural. You will under normal circumstances get back to sleep. But if you happen to glance to your right or left and you see this illuminated dial saying, you know, um, 5.30 a.m., you think, oh, my God, I've only got I've only got an hour and a half before I get to get up. And then that sort of triggers all this stress. It doesn't actually matter, does it? Um, it matters when the alarm clock uh, goes off, not essentially how long you've got before the alarm clock goes off. So I often encourage people to cover the digital dial. It doesn't matter. Uh, the other thing that really irritates me is sleep apps. Mm. So it's worth stressing that no sleep app has been endorsed by any of the sleep federations and no sleep app has been FDA approved. And the problem with sleep apps is that they're based upon an algorithm that is invariably based upon Californian undergraduates. I was asked to comment from somebody on the Times saying, oh, this new sleep app, you know, what do you think of it? And I said, before you tell me any details, uh, let me guess, it was tested on 12 Californian undergraduates <laughs> with three nights in the sleep lab. And he said, well, actually, it was eight Californian undergraduates <laughs> with one night in the sleep lab. And basically, the, the problem is that sleep is very dynamic. It changes as we age, as we've discussed. But so the algorithm may be great for Californian undergraduates, but it's not going to work for the broader population. And so it's a very crude measure. And furthermore, extracting things like REM sleep and slow wave sleep from these apps is extremely difficult. And people get terribly anxious about, you know, say, you haven't had enough slow wave sleep last night. And again, before lockdown, and I kid you not, somebody was so anxious from the information that they were getting from their sleep app. They said, well, what I do to make sure I've had enough slow wave sleep is to set the alarm clock for 3 a.m., wake up and then check how much slow wave sleep my app has told. And this is indicative of, of what's been happening, which is there's now a condition called sleep anxiety, mm. where people are becoming incredibly anxious about not getting to sleep or not getting back to sleep if they wake up or these sorts of parameters of REM versus non-REM. And in a sense, it's deeply misleading. What the sleep apps can be good for is telling you roughly when you went to sleep, roughly how many times you woke up during the night and roughly when you got up. And we use devices like that all the time. Those patients with schizophrenia we talked about, that's how we measured their sleep-wake cycle. And in a sense, that could be really useful. 
because it will be rather like using a set of scales if you want to lose weight. You change your eating behavior, you see a loss of weight, that reinforces the change of behavior. So they could be useful because, oh yeah, I did get that extra sleep and that was because I, I went to bed earlier. So do you see what I mean? You know, it, it sort of then uh, adds as a positive feedback. But the key thing with these devices, don't take them too seriously. Also, what are your thoughts on the data that they're obviously comparing yours to is very biased towards data mostly being done on men. So actually women's sleep cycle is very related to where they are in the menstrual cycle and that often isn't reflected on these devices. I think that's an extremely uh, important point because most of the uh, sleep apps don't take that into account. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you say, that the timing of sleep-wake and the depth uh, of sleep can change enormously through the uh, menstrual cycle, as can, of course, issues like anxiety and stress, yeah. which can then feed back upon sleep. What are your thoughts on journaling? Because I find that often if you're very stressed and anxious before bed, some people do suggest to journal those thoughts down before you go to sleep. What's the research behind that? I think for some people it can be very cathartic. And it goes back to the thing, do what works best for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the key thing. If that works, if you find it great to keep a diary and get it out onto the page, then fantastic. For other people, that may not be the way forward. And I think one really important point about all of this is that one shoe size does not fit all. Yeah. And essentially, you work out what's best for you and then try and defend those behaviors. As you mentioned, someone actually contacted you saying, oh my gosh, I need to get more slow wave sleep or I need to get more REM sleep. Is there any way that you can specifically aim to increase one stage of your sleep or is it pretty much impossible to influence the way that your sleep stages work? Well, that's, you see, that's the, the, the other point, is that it's very difficult for us as individuals to influence the slow wave or REM sleep that we get. So in a sense, what's the value of that information? Right. Now, there are devices emerging which use different sound frequencies to increase the level of slow wave sleep. And the argument there is that that can be used to increase memory consolidation at night. It's still very emerging. But uh, yeah, you're right. So what's the use of that sort of information other than the algorithm that's, that's being used to predict whether you've had a so-called good night or bad night of sleep or, or deep sleep? You know, And at this stage, on the basis of the devices available, I just wouldn't take them too seriously. Good colleague of mine, Ken Wright, who's a professor at the uh, University of Colorado, he teaches a huge class in sleep. Uh, and when the, when the undergraduates come in, the first lecture, he says, you know, hands up here, anybody who's used any sort of sleep app of any type. And the, the whole auditorium, you know, 200 kids, <laughs> put their hands up. And then he says, who now is still using them? And about three hands remain. I think people learn pretty fast that they are not an accurate reflection of their individual sleep needs. I spoke to this amazing female entrepreneur who wanted to email the CEO of this sleep device being like, you've got to stop your data that basically tells women they've failed before they've yes. woken up because, you know, life is hard <sighs> enough without being told you failed at sleep. Uh, well, that, that is exactly the point. You know, you start the day again with that sort of negative bias and there's enough gustiness going on without having <laughs> to be told that you've failed in your sleep, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> you know, starting the day with failure in that regard is just nonsense. <laughs> 
And lastly, to finish, just such a wonderful interview. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to you. You're just such an excellent speaker and so engaging. But what is your ultimate wind down routine? If we were to be at your house in the evening, how do you unwind? Well, as I got older, we tended to go to bed earlier, which is, you know, I was really up doing stuff until the early hours of the morning. Uh, now it's sort of getting towards 10, 30, 11. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, you know. And, and so <laughs> I suppose this is really sad. I, you know, you're really I'm bearing my soul here, Poppy, because it would be watching like an episode of, of, of Vera or The Crown or some <laughs> other, you know, telly-type stuff, um, which is, I suppose it's easy to say what I don't do. And I don't start looking at emails. I don't do, read scientific papers immediately before bed because that's stimulating. Mm. So I'm really disciplined about that, far more than I was even a few years ago. And so it's sort of a wind down routine where, where we sort of will watch something easy on the telly. But it is interesting though, like, because I do think to myself, those people that watch like super intensive murder, like action films, like, isn't that just revving us up again, causing so much anxiety? It would be a disaster for me, yeah, because mm. I have a really strong visual memory. Mm. And so I'd sort of capture some of those images, and that would really be bad for my sleep. So, yeah, it's got to be something gentle. Admittedly, the last um, series of The Tram was not gentle, but the <laughs> earlier ones were. <laughs> Thank you so much for this wonderful interview. I really appreciate your time. And where is the best place for people to find you, maybe ask further questions, or and find your book? I imagine at every single bookstore that you could possibly find. Yes, it's in, thankfully, in all the bookstores, you know, um, Waterstones and Blackwells and everything. And in fact, at the weekend, it was just named as one of the five best science books of 2022 Woo-hoo! by, uh, I know. That's excellent. Yeah, no, I was completely gobsmacked and thrilled. Wow. So it's it's around, um, you know, online, uh, all the usual, usual outlets. Um, if uh, anybody wants to email me, they can. I will get back to you, but it may take me a while uh, because of the the volume of emails I'm getting at the moment. Okay, amazing. We'll put all of those details in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we follow all your work so closely and can't wait to see what you do next. (laughs) Thanks so much, Poppy. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.